Welcome to Behavioral Grooves, the podcast that explores our human condition. I'm Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. We talk with researchers and authors and practitioners to unlock the mysteries of our behavior by using a behavioral science lens. Okay, Mr. Tim Houlihan, why do you think you were motivated to say that last line? <laughs> um, because that's what we always say at the beginning of the episode. And... <laughs> It's written on this piece of paper in front of me, so I thought I would just go ahead and do that. Okay, okay, okay. But, but, but why do you always say that or say what's written down in front of you at the beginning of these podcasts? Is it is it because somebody's paying you to do this? <laughs> right, right. That's very funny, my friend. Uh, <laughs> you know that we don't get paid. No one's paying me. No one's paying you, as far as I know. Yeah, uh-huh. right? Nobody's I, I do, yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I, I do it. We both do this because we love it. We love the idea of talking with people who are brilliant, really brilliant people and finding out the why we do what we do and then sharing that information with others, right? I mean, isn't that it? So it, is there something in that desire to find out what we do or how we do it, right? And share it with others that brings a, maybe brings you a feeling of significance. Oh, oh yeah. I, I think it does. Yeah. I feel, I feel significant by doing this. I do. I, I do. I actually, I, yeah. I, I actually feel a sense of significance by, by doing this podcast. We're 300 and I don't know, many episodes into this. I don't know. How about you? Why do you feel a sense of significance? Yeah. I mean, similar to this. Yeah. I mean, I think similar to you, I think it's, it's, it's fun. It's fun for me. We get to talk to, as you said, really, really brilliant people. And we get to share those conversations with others and lots of others sometimes. And and if I'm really true to myself, there's this bit of ego involved, right? It makes me feel important. It's like, I like the fact that people like what we do and think that we are smarter than we actually are because we're talking (laughs) to these brilliant people and there's a halo effect, right? So there there is this aspect of significance, right? So bringing it back, so... You are motivated to some degree to do this because it feeds your need for significance. Yes, yes, I, I, I think so. I, I think that's <laughs> yeah. true. Yeah. Uh, okay, well, I'm assuming you learned a bit about that from our guest today. Arya W. Kruglansky is a distinguished university professor at the University of Maryland. He directs a lab that studies human motivation as it affects thinking, feeling, and behavior. And he's one of the leading voices in social psychology, being instrumental in our understanding of the motivation of uncertainty and closure, goals and systems, radicalization, and most recently, his work on the quest for significance. Yeah, and Ari has over 500 research papers and articles and has won way, way too many awards for us to list out oh, here. Yeah. Uh, just to say this, his work is amazing, and we were very thrilled to have him as a guest. Yeah. Now, our conversation was really wide ranging as usual. Like but I do usual. Say, yeah. 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 But uh-huh. I do want to say that, like, this quest for significance is something that I think made a big impact on both you and me. So I, I want our listeners to pay attention to that. Yeah. Pay attention to that. Pay attention. Actually, pay attention to everything because I think there's a lot of really interesting stuff, a lot of nuances with that. And um, so, so listeners, we, we hope you will enjoy our talk and that if you do, you post about it on social media or tell a friend 
As mentioned uh, at the start, neither Tim or I are making any money of this, but we do <laughs> love that recognition. So just make our day, make us feel significant and, and, uh, and write out a little social media kind of poster on this and, and it would go a long way to make us smile. That was a nice circle back. Well, well done on that, Kurt. Okay. <laughs> and, and, with, and with that, Groovers, please sit back with a big glass of Quest for Significance and listen to our conversation with Arie Krugolansky. Arie Kuglansky, welcome to Behavioral Grooves. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. We are so excited to have you here. This is really a, uh, an exciting day for us. And we have to know, first thing, do you prefer coffee or tea? Coffee. Coffee? Okay. Excellent. Excellent. <laughs> if you had to choose dinner, to have, to have dinner with your favorite musician, your favorite actor, or your favorite sports figure, which would you pick? Musician. Oh, Excellent. You gave that some thought. That yes. was that was. Uh, does a musician come to mind <laughs> that you have? Not very active. <laughs> yes. Any particular musicians? Actually, not. Okay. 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 Great. So, the third speed round question: Is the dichotomy between motivation and cognition artificial? I think so. Yes. Is it? This is still a speed question, right? Yes, yes it is. We will, we'll dig into we'll that dig into later. It in a few minutes, yes. yes. Okay. All right, all right, all right. <laughs> and the last speed round question, and again, we'll probably want to dig into this one later too, but uh, is intrinsic motivation just focused on the end goals or is there a fusion of the end and of the goal uh, in, in that intrinsic motivation? There's a fusion of the activity and the goal. And the goal, the activity is then perceived and experienced as its goal. That was still a speed around question, right? It was still a speed but around question, like, but I think this is the, think this, that was the last one. So, <laughs> right. um, okay. it, and, and we will definitely, I think, get into that as we kind of talk through some of the different things. But, you know, we are super excited to have you here. As Tim already mentioned, you have had a prolific career, uh, impactful career, focusing on a number of different insights from motivation and cognition, uh, to understanding the underpinnings of um, goals and goal systems, to extremism and terrorism. And most recently, you're, you're working on the uh, quest for significance. In each of these areas, is there an underlying common thread that you see running through all of this work? Or do you see each of that as kind of being distinct? The underlying thread, the most uh, general underlying thread would be motivation. Mm. I believe that uh, motivation is the force that uh, propels behavior. Mm. It's not cognition. Cognition, uh, you know, motivation is the dog. Cognition is the, the tail that, <laughs> that the dog is wagging. <laughs> motivation affects the, the way we think, the way we act. Uh, motivation affects uh, our feelings. Uh, emotion is the flip side of motivation. If uh, our motivation is successful, we have a positive emotion. If it's unsuccessful, we have a negative emotion. So it's all driven by motivation. Motivation is the big story. And uh, unfortunately, uh, during the 70s, it was uh, eclipsed by cognition uh, because of the rise of cognitive psychology. Uh, I have nothing against cognitive psychology. I love cognitive psychology. But I think it eclipsed the idea of motivation. And the humans were likened to computers, 
that act on algorithms and the, the questions of memory, retrieval, and coding took over, forgetting that it's all motivated, that we're doing it for some purpose. Everything that we do is driven by a purpose. Did you feel a need to sort of right the ship to bring to bring the story of motivation back to the central part of of the the psychological research community? I did. I did. I, I didn't feel, you know, it's my mission. I hope that it's going to happen. And my research throughout this time uh, was uh, emphasizing the motivation aspect. Whether we're talking about uh, you know the distinction between motivation and cognition that is in, in many ways superficial, understanding goals as knowledge systems that are abiding by the same rules as all cognition, but yet they have a specific content that is motivational, whether it be uh, issues of the, the role of motivation in, in knowledge formation, the quest for significance, or the need for cognitive closure and issues of uncertainty and how you deal with uncertainty. My latest book, by the way, is on uncertainty, just uh, was published uh, several weeks ago. Uh, so motivation was the underlying theme, and it ramified into a variety of different contexts, and, and it still does. My latest article was on aggression, mm -hmm. uh, as motivated by the quest for significance, uh, re-examining the old frustration-aggression hypothesis and showing that aggression uh, is a way, a primordial way, very difficult to uproot way of feeling significant. And that's why we see so many so much aggression in the world and it's so difficult to, to eliminate it because it's a primordial evolved way of feeling significant. And all the great revolutions and the great fights were for the sake of significance and, you know, they were motivated uh, and, and they led to aggression. Mm. Uh, Anti-colonialist... Uh, struggle in the 50s and the 60s. Uh, I was recently looking at Jean-Paul Sartre's uh, preface to uh, the, the, the classic uh, work on uh, colonialism by Franz Fanon. Okay. Uh, the title of the book is The Wretched of the Earth. And uh, Jean-Paul Sartre, the humanist, is advocating aggression. Kill them. Kill the Europeans, he says. You kill a European, you, you achieve two goals. You kill your enemy and you become a free man. You become you you attain dignity. So, so you know, motivation underlies aggression, quest for significance, and it also even later paper that is now under review has to do with romantic love as being all motivated by uh, the quest for significance. You do not fall in love randomly. It's not just a matter of chemistry or magic. You see somebody across the room and you fall in love. No, uh, we identified two aspects of it. The, the first, what we call uh, the fandom aspect. The person has qualities that you admire and the person loves you in return or has a likelihood of loving, loving you in return and thereby the qualities that this person have are bestowed upon you. So it's a kind of- I think like children, I, I think about children, we talk about children acting out. When, when, yes. when they're young, right? This, and this this is this need for significance that they're they're yes. they're wanting to be seen, to be noticed, right? Uh, is this? Uh, do you see this connecting to the adulthood, to independence movements, and things like that? Very much so. Uh, you know, the, the child from the earliest uh, times on wants to be appreciated, wants to matter. They want to do. They want to have the attention of their parents. 
They want to uh, exhibit their knowledge. I know, I know, you know, this kind of thing. They, they want to, you know, feel that they are successful and, and significant. And, and very often in their own uh, society, the, the, the children's society, they attain their significance through bullying and through violent means. They beat each other up. Uh, so again, you know, they see violence very often as a way of gaining significance. So I have a feeling that this this whole uh, episode is going to jump around a lot. I, I, this is going to be <laughs> yeah. very fun. This is going to be good. Excellent. <laughs> but but with this this aspect of this aggression aspect within and the the search for significance, does that lend itself then to this idea that maybe marginalized groups, lower economic, lower power status groups would more likely use an aggressive approach because they're lacking in that significance that they're not getting in other aspects of their life? Is that a, is that a correlate, is that a causal component within this or is that? They will, they will be more susceptible to a narrative that uh, promised them significance through violence. Okay. You know, by the way, you know, the, the economic inequality that is growing in this country and in the Western world in general, uh, the, the work by uh, uh, the French uh, economist, uh, I'm blocking on his name, Ticotti, I think. Okay. Uh, a very important book on rising inequalities. Recently, there was a book by two Princeton economists, uh, Case and Deaton. Uh, Deaton is a Nobel Prize winning economist. And they talk about the rising wave of suicide by working class Americans. Mm. Uh, longevity is, is really declining because of you know, they basically commit suicide. Uh, they uh, kill themselves through the uh, substance abuse and alcohol and all of that. Uh, and they say, the economists say, it's not about the money. It's not about the money. It's about the loss of dignity. Uh, and if the economists tell you that, you know, this is... <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, well if the economists tell you that it's not about the money, I mean, what else is there to say? <laughs> Well, today that's a, that's a good indication uh, that it probably has some significance yeah, there, right? That there's probably exactly. something going on. If the economists are saying it's not about the money, mm-hmm. let's Absolutely. pay attention to that, right? That's right. Today that's happens right. to be the 10th anniversary of the founding of Black Lives Matter, uh, yes, which is certainly uh, certainly focused on raising awareness and and this cry for significance. That absolutely right in the, the very the very world matter. They want, you know, black people, African Americans want to matter. They do not want their, mm-hmm. uh, you know, their their lives to be uh, a free game for for you know uh, aggressive policemen to 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 take away. Uh, so I think that idea expresses exactly what it is that they are concerned about. They are concerned about mattering. By the way, not only they, but you know, on the other side of the aisle, proud boys, mm. you know. Proud Boys, an entirely different ideology, entirely different, just the, 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 the diametric opposite, right? They want to be proud. Again, you know, they want to be proud. The, the MAGA uh, slogan, make America great again. It's about greatness. You know, you feel you are left behind because of inequality, because of globalization, because of whatever. I'll make you great again. So it's all, it's, you know, this one motivation that uh, makes us feel good about ourselves when somebody likes us, somebody pays us a compliment, somebody takes us into account. That uh, individual motivation ramifies into so- social movements that, you know, change the world. Yeah. 
you've done a lot of work recently on extremism, on terrorism, yes. a number of those. Obviously, some of this, what we're talking about now fits into some of that. But can you tell us a little bit about what you found about extremism in particular and, and, and then maybe how that leads into uh, terrorism? I know you've talked about motivational unbalance where they're given need, gain, yes. dominance and overrides other basic concerns. Maybe expand upon on your, your insights there. Right. You know, our mental resources are limited. Uh, our energies, our attention is limited. The more you, we put it into one basket, the more we take it away from other baskets. So when one concern, and, and so the, 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 it's a very interesting dynamic because if you put everything into one concern, one goal, one motivation, those other concerns pale into insignificance. They fade out. And, and what happens then is that they stop exercising constraints on what you're going to do to satisfy this one overriding goal. So for example, a very simple example is one of hunger. When we are hungry, we usually choose what we eat. We want to eat something that is healthy, something that is tasteful, as well as something that satisfies our hunger. But when the hunger becomes the dominant need and every, all the other considerations fade out, we will eat anything at all, anything that satisfies hunger. We will, you know, eat bark on the trees. We'll <laughs> eat our pets. We'll, you know, we'll eat cannibalism has been known to, to happen under those circumstances. So when one need becomes, when the United States were concerned, was concerned about uh, security in the aftermath of 9-11, all other considerations went out the window. There was a Patriot Act. There was torture in Abu Ghraib anything in order to provide security. And all those other things just were not constraining our behavior anymore. So this is something that uh, we uh, and any organism actually is capable of. In, in, in the paper that I published on it, even flies, once you know they're very hungry, they'll eat things that they would not eat otherwise. They will eat bitter and toxic uh, substances. So, you know, when one motivation dominates, anything goes. When your quest for significance press dominates, and the road to significance is, is uh, uh, identified in narrative that tells you you've got to kill other people or you've got to commit suicide for the cause, then you're ready to sacrifice yourself, sacrifice your family, sacrifice your career, and, and do it just in order to uh, attain significance because all, all these other things do not matter anymore. So that's a dynamic, and it's it's a dynamic that uh, motivates violent extremism of the, the kind we see. People are willing to risk life and limb for a cause, and but also other types of extremism, you know, extreme sports, extreme dieting, uh, love crushes, uh, stalking, when something becomes so important that nothing else matters, uh, addictions of various sorts. So it's very interesting, you know, I think science is at its best when it uh, when it identifies underlying principles that combine many different phenomena. On the surface, seem like very strange bedfellows. What does have stalking to do with suicide bombing? But yet, you know, if you identify the underlying principle of extremism, it allows you to talk in common terms about things that seem to be entirely, entirely uh, unrelated. Well, let's pull back just a bit and think, okay. uh, I I'd like to come back to how would you describe 
a couple of things that uh, that are really central to what we wanted to talk about today: motivation and goals. Now, right. now they're closely interconnected. Uh, yes. But uh, but could you just start with a definition? Well, my understanding is of motivation is as follows: All humans have a set of basic needs, and I think I'm not alone in, in holding that view. Maslow held that view, and there are several, you know, DC and Ryan. Uh, Susan Fisk, uh, Dory Higgins, they all assume that there is a set of basic needs. These needs are universal. We are hardwired to have those needs. Now, it's very easy to identify the physiological needs like hunger or thirst or the need for uh, sleep or rest. Uh, the, the, the psychogenic, the, the psychological needs were more controversial and, and people disagreed on what is that set of basic needs. But the idea of basic needs is non-controversial. Everybody agrees on that. These needs are hardwired. They are served by goals that are culturally determined. So, and that, that's where the variety among, you know, in, in behavior occurs between cultures, between people, between subcultures within society, because it's all socially constructed. Different societies have different ways of attaining. So for example, let's take the quest for significance that to me is one of the basic needs. In some societies, significance is attained by humanitarian needs, by uh, doing good to others, by helping others. In other societies or in other circumstances, the same need is, is gratified by fighting against alleged enemies, against op oppressors, such as you know the fight, fight against colonialists, uh, and so on and so forth. So from that, uh, it's a pyramid, from that set of basic needs that are universal and that makes us human, the lower levels of the uh, pyramid are socially constructed, context-specific, very flexible. You can exchange one for another. So for example, if, uh, uh, you know, in, in one of our studies on extremism, uh, we saw how the Tamil Tigers, one of the most vicious terror organizations in the history of terrorism, uh, once they were defeated and, and put into a, the, the radicalization uh, program, they substituted other ways, vocational training, tr that, that allowed them to attain their significance in society through constructive works. So whereas the basic needs cannot be replaced, that's, you, you cannot replace your need for food, uh, that's not going to work. But you can replace a means, uh, all those goals that lead to those means can be replaced. And, you know, that's basically the cardinal uh, hope of behavior change, of, of you know, fighting uh, aggression, fighting uh, violence, because violence is not a basic, it's a means to another, uh, to, to a basic goal of significance, and that can be changed. If I understand what you just said correctly, it sounds like, there's in both even the basic needs, but also in those psychological needs, there are a multitude of paths to yes. satisfy yes. them. Yes. So, so again, yes. I could eat just bananas. It might not be healthy for me, but that would right. satisfy my, my quest for hunger uh, right. to a certain right. degree. It might not be healthy right. for me. Is that the same thing? Can, can you have satisfy? And I think that's what you're saying in some of these other aspects, as you talked about the aggression and the, you know, all right, we can change that aggression 
pathway to satisfy a need with maybe something better. Is that one of the things that you're, yes. you're talking about? Yes, yes. You, uh, what I'm saying that the basic needs, we are all hard, hardwired with them. We cannot eliminate them. We cannot eliminate people's quest for significance. We cannot eliminate people's you know, need for food and for, for hydration. That's the way we are. But we can change ways of satisfying those needs. In the same way as you can satisfy your hunger by various ways. You can cook your meal, you can go to a restaurant, order in. Uh, you can also satisfy your need for significance by either joining the terrorist or fighting the terrorist. Uh, you know, being a humanitarian or being an artist or a great athlete or, or just a good person. So these are flexible. And I think that flexibility gives hope that we are not predetermined, we are not predestined by our nature, uh, as Hobbes you know, would say that we are bad or, or other scholars would say, no, we are good. We can be both bad and good, but I think the choice between good and bad uh, is uh, interesting because they are both means to the same goal of mattering and significance, and therefore they can be mutually substitutable, interchangeable. And all of these, all of these desires end up being funneled. They're all motivated, that we have some yes. motivation to achieve yes. each of them. The, the, ne the needs are, yes, the needs are motivated. They need to be satisfied. And therefore, they motivate behavior aiming right. at their satisfaction. Right. Yeah. Uh, they, uh, they motivate thinking uh, in order to find ways of satisfying them. So, Ayelet uh, Fishbach, who you have co-authored with uh, projects, yes. uh, many projects. She's uh, yes. such a delight, and we are grateful to have had her as a guest. Would she... I so much agree with that. She, she was my <laughs> postdoc, by the way. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> fantastic. She, uh, if, if I'm representing her idea properly, uh, that motivation and goals happen basically at the same time, that we can't really have a goal without motivation. We can't really have motivation right. without a goal. It, it, right. it, did I summarize that fairly, Aria? Absolutely. I mean, what I was trying to portray is that this hierarchy, you know, all goals are in the service of these basic needs and goals in turn are served at yet lower level of, of means to those goals. So it's a hierarchy, kind of cascading hierarchy. When uh, you, whatever the goal that you're pursuing now, it ties to one of those basic needs because those needs basically explain everything that we do. All our goals go back to those basic needs. Uh, sometimes the goal can satisfy more than one basic need, but I think it's, it's all, and in that sense, IELT is absolutely right. Uh, all goals have, um, you know, they're serving a need, they're motivated. Yeah. So, and I see it in terms of this hierarchy, this cascading hierarchy, which the, the upper level is those needs, both physiological and psychogenic. They're both fundamental, both basic. And then the goals that serves them are culturally determined, are context determined, are occasion determined, and, you know, and they're flexible. Yeah. So, we talked about this a little bit before we got on air that Tim and I have both done a lot of work with incentives and yes. goals within organizations, application right. of this. And and what I'm hearing from what you're saying, or actually what I'd like to ask you about that is, so when we think about incentives and we think about how setting those incentives up, you know, typically organizations think about cash. And, and But what you're right. saying is that 
that cash is actually just a means to some other goal, uh, desire, need that they have. And so yes. there may be a way, and, 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 and correct me if I'm wrong in thinking about this, that there may be a more direct way of incentivizing people to satisfy some of those basic needs if they can be identified. So, as you said, um, you know, meaning other aspects of those aspects, if you can build something in yes. that yes. drives that. Is yeah. that, would I, would that be okay? Am I off base there? Absolutely. I think that, you know, people in organization, people in work settings, uh, they basically are motivated by uh, this quest for mattering and dignity and significance. So I think that's the underlying motivation. Money is a, in our materialistic society is a way of showing how much you're worth. How much mm. you're worth? You know, w- what are your salary? That shows how important you are. And, uh, you know, a person like, uh, like Trump never stops boasting how rich he is. You know, he exaggerated wealth because he feels that makes him a very important person. But there are other ways. You, you know, money is not the only thing. Uh, my friend and colleague, the anthropologist Scott Atran, talks about sacred values. Mm. That people, are, you know, people are willing to give up money and, and, and you know, Palestinians to fight for their territory. They would not be bought uh, mm. by, by financial agreements. There was an attempt uh, once, uh, you know, the Israelis retreated from the Gaza Strip uh, the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund and all the Western countries were, were, were pushing lots of money into the Strip in order to uh, afford uh, economic development. And that, they thought, is going to pacify the Palestinians. But it didn't work at all. Uh, they used the money to buy uh, weapons, to, to arm themselves, to, 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 you know, to uh, increase the, the resistance. So I think sacred values are... You talked about different goals have different degree of fusion with the overarching need for significance. And I think, you know, sacred values in, in, in a trans scheme are very directly related to significance. People may agree, disagree about how significant money makes you, but people would all agree that, you know, being a great military hero or a great humanitarian, there's no question that that makes you a significant person. So. There are different ways, different means of of uh, of incentivizing people, of of you know, showing them what is the most direct way to satisfy uh, that what you really want. You did not mm-hmm. really money as such. You want to have you know the, the sense of you know fame, fortune, and you are a successful person and you deserve people's respect. Yeah. In the speed round, we asked a question about means and fusion. And that's a, that's a lot of some of the work that you've done. And you, yes. you said, this is a speed round. So I want to offer this opportunity <laughs> now um, for us to be able to expand upon this idea of means and fusion. And as I understand it, as it relates to intrinsic motivation, it's that yes. it, it's not the end goal that the, that the means itself becomes the goal. Is that am, am, that's am right? I, okay. Can you expand that's on right. that and what that, the implications of that are? Yes. You know, in psychology, I think there was a confusion about what intrinsic motivation is. Uh, And some people, some of my good friends, actually, thought that uh, intrinsic motivation means some uh, content of motives, like exploration or curiosity or relatedness. These are intrinsic motives, and there are some external motives, like money or fame. All motivation, by definition, is internal. It's something within you. 
whether, you know, you may crave money, but it's still you who are craving it. So it's not external, it's internal. So I think that the, the proper way, in, in my understanding, of, of talking about interesting motivation is when the activity itself, the means itself, is at the same time the goal. Uh, so, you know, when you eat a, an ice cream cone, uh, you don't want to a, a accomplish anything other than <laughs> ice cream cone, right? Um, you you've hit my 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 passion right there is, is ice cream. So That's Kurt's love me. language. <laughs> perfect, perfect. So is but to what degree does extrinsic motivation exist? Extrinsic motivation exists when there is a clear separation between the means and the end. Uh, for example, if you work out in order to develop your muscles, maybe you, you can perceive the the working out as a way of uh, losing weight, as uh, one means that among many that leads to that goal. So there is a clear separation. Perhaps you can lose weight by dieting, by exercise, you know, by, by eating certain ki kinds of foods. Th there are several different means and each means is therefore separate. The more means there are, the more they are separated from the goal because there are other means to that goal. That's not, you know, there is no unique and, and, and the intimate relation between the means and the end because there are other means to the same end. So, you know, cooking is one way of satisfying your hunger, but it can also go to a restaurant. So satisfying your hunger can be accomplished in many different ways. So in some cases, there is this separation between the means and an end. You know that, uh, you know, uh, you, you save money in order to buy a car. Buying a car is very separate from saving money. But in other cases, uh, you know, the means gets very fused with the end and the, the, you don't see any other way. Uh, you do not see any other way of attaining significance other than becoming a suicide bomb. Uh, they tell you, you know, all the other ways do not really, in this particular case, the only way is to, to become a suicide bomber. Yeah. You know, as the, as the coach said, you know, being a suicide bomber isn't everything. It's the only thing. Uh, <laughs> oh, I shouldn't laugh oh, at that. No, I should is, not laugh that at that. Very that, dark. Is, oh, that is very oh, dark. But, so another one of the, the speed round questions that we asked you about was about the dichotomy between motivation and cognition. And, and right. is that artificial? And you've done, uh, this is the, the part that I, you know, I, I was introduced to you on is the, this element of motivation and cognition and that whole component. And again, for our listeners who might not be familiar with your work, can you talk a little bit about, A, what that dichotomy kind of per was perceived to be, and then kind of the work that you've done on that? So There was a, there was a history of, of uh, this uh, study of the relation between motivation and cognition. In some cases, people juxtapose motivation to cognition. Uh, disregarding the fact, so for example, uh, juxtaposing motivation to reduce cognitive dissonance with the expectation that uh, something will happen. So expectation is the cognitive aspect, uh, reducing dissonance is the motivational aspect. But the expectation also is motivated. So that juxtaposition really does not make any sense. Uh, motivation, any goal that we have, is cognitively represented. It can come to mind, it can disappear from mind, it can be activated, uh, it can be forgotten. So motivation can be, you know, you see uh, something very enticing, 
in a in a store and that motivation to acquire it, such as an ice cream cone or something of that nature. And it, all of a sudden, you you want the ice cream cone. A minute ago, you didn't. Motivations can override one another. Once uh, your house is on fire, uh, you forget that you needed to you know go shopping or right. <laughs> so your attention is is paid to a different motivation at this point. So motivation is a very strong cognitive aspect. It's cognitively represented, activated. It can appear, disappear, be suppressed, be inhibited. And, and in that sense, motivation has a cognitive, uh, cognitive dimension that is very important to understand. If you want to manipulate, you want to change people's motivations. But at the same time, uh, the contents of motivation is different. Contents of goals is different from contents of objects like table, you know, mm. table is an object that is cognitively represented, but it's not a motivational construct. A, a table doesn't make you do things, right? Whereas hunger makes you do things uh, or quest for significance. So motivational concepts like needs, goals, and means have action implications. They affect how you behave, whereas other cognitive objects do not necessarily. So motivation has a cognitive representation, but it's a, a cognitive representation that has a specific content. And that content is a content that is dynamic, it uh, propels action, propels cognition, and makes us, you know, do things. Yeah. In, in some other work that you've done, and I'm going to quote uh, from one of the papers, and I'm, I apologize, I don't have the name of the paper right here, but uh, you talk about uh, that attitude, that this liking of an end state is not sufficient to cause behavior. Rather, right. that liking must first become a desire, which will only occur if the individual like, likes a potential future state more than a present state. And that desire must subsequently be transformed into a goal, which will only occur if the desire is perceived as attainable. So I, I, what I'm hearing this is that goes in with this cognition piece, right? We have to think about this and, and different aspects of it. But help me understand that a little bit more if I'm misunderstanding well, you know, that. It's, it's, again, a very interesting history in, in social psychology. Uh, in social psychology, the concept of attitude has been a very important, one of the, if not the most important topic of study, attitudes. And why? Because people assume that attitudes should predict behavior. Mm-hmm. But in fact, attitudes is just one component. It's not enough. You can like something and do nothing about it because you, you do not have that other component of expectancy of being able to attain it. It, it. it did not form a goal. You may like Mona Lisa painting, but you're not going to do anything about it because you cannot possibly afford it. Or, you know, <laughs> the Louvre and the Louvre is not selling it. Yeah, uh, yeah it's not for sale. Yeah. It's not for sale. Uh, you may like a lot of things, and but still that doesn't motivate you. In order to motivate you, two things need to happen. Once the expectancy that you can attain it has to pass a given threshold, so it has to be attainable. Not only the attitude talks about how something is desirable, you like it. But for, for this to uh, translate into a goal of wanting it, you, you need to have some chance of it being attainable. You know, even uh, the unrequited love in research by my friend Roy Baumeister shows, even those people who, who, you know, profess unrequited love, they still harbor a hope that at some point, somewhere, somehow, 
the lover will come to their senses and realize how wonderful they are and will, will uh, reciprocate their uh, affection. Uh, so there's always that expectancy uh, in addition to the, to the uh, liking. So there's a value. Something has to have value. It's desirable, but it has to be attainable. If it's yeah. unattainable, then it doesn't become a goal. It's something that you like, but, you know, we, we like good weather, mm -hmm. but, you know, there's <laughs> nothing we can do about it, right? You could um, move. You could move, <laughs> but, you know. If you, but, uh, but that's, exactly. It, it, it sounds like, um, and it reminded me when you said this of the, the movie Dumb and Dumber when uh, there was the woman talking, I can't remember the, the, the main character, and saying... Uh. There, you know, you you don't have a you have a you have a ch one chance in a million, and he goes, "So I got a chance, right?" And it was, you know, he was like, That's and he was all excited about, "I have a chance," you know. I should have used that example in the paper. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, even if you have the value and the expectancy, even if it's desirable and attainable, it has to be the more important goal in the situation because yeah. other goals may, you know, your house is on fire. Even though you know shopping is desirable and attainable, you're going to abandon it because any more more important goal is overriding it. So all of this ha has to happen before an attitude. That's why we called it the rocky road from attitudes to behavior. Attitudes do not, as such, be, uh, they have to be translated into goals, and the goal has to be the most dominant goal in the situation in order for it to uh, prompt behavior. Now, these things also collide in your work on extremism and terrorism uh, and, and radicalization. You've written extensively about this. And uh, can you tell us a little bit how these particular elements manifest themselves to become so important to someone in, in the radicalization and uh, terrorism uh, environment? Right. We, uh, we have proposed a 3N model of radicalization. Uh, the three N's are, the first N is the need, the second N is the narrative, and the third N is the network. And when these th three components come together, you have this combustible mixture that can result, that often results in terrorism, radicalization, violence. Now, the need that we have identified in all cases of, of radicalization is the quest for significance. It's none other than that. You know, people called it by different names, you know, uh, the perks of paradise. But the perks of paradise, in the case of Islamist extremism, is not just the paradise per se, in the same uh, sense that it's not money per se in, in the suicide of, of white uh, working class Americans. Uh, the, 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 the perks of paradise are in recognition of your great deed, of, of your heroism, of your martyrdom. Uh, that makes you an important person worthy of meeting the prophet and wedding, you know, these uh, wonderfully beautiful women and all of that. So it's not the perks per se, it's what they represent. So the need is the quest for significance. but uh, And the quest for significance can be activated through humiliation. People feel that they were disregarded, that they do not matter, or that they were left behind. But that in and of itself is not enough. You need to have a narrative that tells you how to get it, uh, how to get significance, right? And that relates to the, 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 to the uh, component of expectancy uh, that, uh, you know, you just mentioned. You have to have the expectancy of being able to attain significance. Otherwise, otherwise you may just commit suicide or do something else 
withdraw, become depressed, right? You need to have a narrative that tells you and the, you know, the, the violence justifying ideologies, whether it be Islamist ideologies or other or, or ethno-nationalist or, or anti-colonial ideology tell you this is the way to do it. And if you do it, you're going to attain significance. And, the, and these are cultural uh, These are shifts. definitely, yeah. yes. Yeah, the, the, the narrative is cultural or subcultural even. You know, with, it's, it's part and parcel. And this is, goes to the third element, the network. We are all social beings. A narrative alone uh, is insufficient. It has to be validated by a network of people. We are social beings. We defer and refer to other people. So it has to be, uh, something that our network agrees on, and our network is the network that ultimately bestows dignity and significance upon ourselves. So, so the three elements, the end, the, the need, the narrative, and the network have to come together. And that's, yeah. that's our model of extremism. So, by the way, that- I'm, I'm a member of a NATO panel that looks at radicalization in the militaries of the member nations. And we are employing this model, the 3N model, to understand it. So, yeah. Uh, no, that's great, great work. Thank and you. Thank you. We appreciate, I think everybody um, listening appreciates that. Um, but when you, you talk about this 3N model, I'm wondering with your work, given today and the interconnected uh, world that we live in with social media and yes others, I, I feel that that could impact two of those ends the, on the narrative, right? And being able to tell what this story is and to have that story be transmuted larger and, and, and further and faster, as well as finding that network of, of like-minded individuals that may not be geographically located near you, but dispersed throughout the, throughout the world. But now you have a, a, a means of being able to connect them does that lend itself, um, A, did you see that? And two, does that lend itself then to uh, increasing the likelihood of extremism and, and the radicalization and some of the potential negative a- effects of this? You're absolutely right. The, the technology of the internet and the social media allows uh, people to find a network where they you know, would not be able to do it uh, heretofore if they had an extreme view it would be difficult to find other people with equally extreme view. Now, on the internet, no matter what your views are, you'll find other people. Uh, so that kind of really eliminates the issue of geographical distance, geographical proximity, and makes the world very interconnected. And that could and, and does result in greater recruitment, a major uh, tool of recruitment to uh, far-right militias or, or Islamist uh, uh, a jihadist kind of uh, groups is through internet. Mm-hmm. It's, they convey the narrative, they present, articulate the narrative, uh, they uh, create networks of people, they embrace you, give you significance when once you connect with them. Uh, so, you know, it's a, it's a very, uh, the, as a technology, it, uh, it can do all of that. But I think as with any technology, it can be used for good purposes and bad purposes. So presumably we can also uh, create networks that would give people significance through socially constructed means. It's, you know, it's difficult to, com- to com- uh, compete with violence because, as I said before, violence is a very primitive 
primordial means of gaining significance. So, you know, people are resonating to it in the same way as you and I are resonating to an ice cream cone. Uh, it simply, you know, lifts our lives. Violence has that kind of appeal. Uh, so it's very difficult. We did research in Sri Lanka on the dismantling of the Liberation Tigers of Tamil Elam, this, you know, very awesome uh, terror uh, group. And we talked to people who are de-radicalized. So there's one person who worked now as translator, and he was supporting his family, and we asked him, you know, how do you feel now that you are, you know, you're integrated back into the Sri Lankan society, you can support your family, how do you feel? And he said, I feel okay. I felt better as a warrior. Hmm. Wow. I, you know, that is kind of primordial. You know, you feel you are a real man, uh, you know, with so, a big gun on a Humvee. Your hair is blowing in the wind or your kafia or whatever. I, you feel you're it. So I, wow. I don't want to end this on a negative of, of here. So... <laughs> What stick can, with what, ice cream. <laughs> stick with the ice cream. Yes, I, the ice cream. Was, I would always stick with ice cream. That's for sure. But but is there anything? So so what can we do? You you talked about this idea that with technology you can also use it to potentially make some um, more positive narratives and to to build maybe positive networks. But are, are there things that we can do either as individuals or as community or government uh, components as we're moving forward to? help in stymieing some of this negative radicalization that's going on? I think so. I think that, uh, you know, the fact that our goals are flexible and can be substituted for one another, that gives us uh, the flexibility. You know, people talked for, for times immemorial about the fight of the evil versus good. I think that's true. The evil is a possibility uh, ingrained in our nature to attain our dominance, our significance, our mattering uh, through violent means. But we also can educate people, can educate society to attain our significance through positive means. So I think it's it's the, the battle of civ civilization against brutality. There are setbacks uh, in that road. There are all kinds of things that happen, and violence has its intuitive primordial appeal. But I think uh, the hope is that it can be done. Yes, we can. There is work by uh, Steven Pinker, very important work, on the fact that uh, violence over uh, the, the millennia has decreased. And that means that there is hope that, uh, that civilization can overcome. And I think through education, through understanding, through psychological literacy of, mm -hmm. you know, us understanding what it is that we're doing, uh, th there is a way of, of changing it because the psychology of it allows for interchangeability of substitutability of the good for the bad. I am so grateful that you just shared that beautiful sense of optimism. We we absolutely need that. Uh, and we also are curious about your musical interests. And uh, if we were to imagine that REA has to spend a year on a desert island Actually, you get to let's 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 frame this in a positive way. You have the the beautiful gift of being able to spend a year on a desert island, and you get to take two musical artists with you. Not not the physical people, but their their musical catalogs. What uh, what two musical artist catalogs would you take with you? I'd probably uh, bring uh, Johann Sebastian Bach, 
uh, and possibly Miles Davis. Oh, Miles Davis. Fantastic. (laughs) So you're novelty seeking. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) In the variety. Uh, But big catalogs for both of them, right? Uh, Yes, yes. I love love both of them. I think both are, you know, doing very profound music. But my my musical tastes are very eclectic. I love uh, uh, Latin music. I love uh, salsa music, mambo music, all of that. Uh, I love rhythm. And I think... Both uh, uh, Bach, uh, Davis, and and the salsa have written. Yeah, that's very cool. Well, that is that is absolutely true. There is uh, Bach really made rhythm an important part yes. of music. Uh, it, it it wasn't. I, I shouldn't say it wasn't. Haydn uh, probably uh, had it. Uh, the Vivaldi certainly had a, a strong yes. sense of rhythm. Rhythm, um, but Bach, boy, he brought rhythm right to the forefront, didn't he? Absolutely. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. Do you like to listen to music when you're working? I like to, but sometimes it's very distracting. So yeah, uh, when I really need to work, uh, I, I turn it off. Unfortunately, silence. <laughs> uh, do you do? In fact, do you prefer silence in, in those? I cases? prefer silence. Yes, because music is so a- appealing to me that it draws me away from from what needs to be done. Well, you, you are just like Tim. Tim can't listen to to music when he works either because he says he gets too drawn into the music that yes, it, it, that yes. becomes his uh, the higher art uh, goal, right? That goal <laughs> comes listening to the music as opposed to doing the Absolutely. work. Absolutely, that's exactly it. All of a sudden, right. takes context over there. That's exactly yeah. right. It's a hierarchy. Music. music. <laughs> I think you've got it. <laughs> Arie, this is such a pleasure. We have so enjoyed uh, our conversation today. Thank you for I being a guest. Too. It was really a, a very nice uh, opportunity, and I love talking to you guys, and uh, I wish you all the best. Thank you. Before we get started on our grooving session, we wanted to say thanks for listening and wanted to ask you about your motivations for listening to this podcast. Do you like what you learn? Do you like to apply these cool ideas in your work or your home life? Well, we do, and that's why we share it with you. And that's why we'd like you to share Behavior Grooves with one person this week. Just just one person. Share it because you find some joy or interesting ideas in our podcast. Take Nick Epley's advice and share it with a stranger on the bus or a train or standing Ooh. in line waiting for your double mocha pumpkin spice cappuccino. I don't know. Wait, wait. Yeah, now, I don't even think there is a double mocha pumpkin spice cappuccino. Oh, you don't know what people <laughs> want. And I'm sure there's somebody out there that has ordered that once or twice. Uh, that's, that, that's certainly possible, but it sounds awful to me. <laughs> that's, that's true. So there's no accounting for taste, Tim, and uh, you are proof of that. So, um, <laughs> But the point is, Groovers, we rely on your help to spread the word of this podcast. Yeah. So share this episode or share the whole podcast. Either way, we'd really appreciate it. Welcome to our grooving session where Tim and I share ideas on what we learned from our discussion with Aria, have a free flowing conversation and groove on whatever else comes into our motivated brains. I was going to say significant, but we, we just, we killed that in the intro and I'm just like, you know, I, I know okay. we're on a quest for significance. You know we're on a quest for significance. So I'm just sticking with motivated, motivated brain. It's like, 
it's my new, it's like my new thing. This whole idea of quest for significance is my whole thing. I talked with clients about, I mean, literally we had this conversation a few weeks ago and all of a sudden I'm in a meeting with some senior leaders uh, talking about some training that we're doing for this organization that's going through some major transitions and, you know, they're having these talks about how, you know, they're being bought by a larger company and there's a lot of uncertainty. They don't know what's going on. Uh, they're not sure how many people are going to be retained, what jobs all these people are going to have, what jobs the leaders are going to have. So there's all sorts of, you know, mess going on. And I went into this diatribe about, well, you know, we're all motivated by this quest for significance. <laughs> and I went in and I started talking about it. And, but so I'm, I say that kind of in jest, but the idea of that resonated. It was, it was, it was one of those things where all of a sudden you can see these leaders, they're really bright and, you know, well intentioned leaders. And they're thinking about this, thinking about how they're trying to create this. They get through this transition phase, the standstill phase between the announcement of the merger and the actual, you know, FTC approval of it. And there's limits on what they can talk about and what they can do. And they're going, oh, yes, it's this aspect of it's a lot of the reason why some of the issues are coming up because people don't feel significance because they don't know the work that they're doing could just be thrown out as soon as the new company wow. buys wow. them. Right. So. Well, you know, we talked about this in the in the introduction, Kurt, about uh, quest for significance for each of us, uh, how it, it is at play. But really, I, I'm kind of serious. What does the quest for significance mean for you? Uh, maybe, maybe in your in your work, in your consulting business, or or for the podcast, yeah. or in your personal life, <laughs> or, or or in your big toe. I don't know, Kurt. What do you, what's the quest for significance mean for you? There's. I think it takes on different meanings at different times and in different situations. I think that that's the interesting thing. Mm. So as the more that I've thought about this, the more that it has been playing in the back of my brain as we are moving forward with this new concept or this new idea, the quest for significance for this podcast, right? There is an element of this that means we're giving something back to people where we're, we're helping educate, get them more information that they can use that maybe will help them improve their lives, improve what they're doing. And that has significance. I think that that brings a significance for me that means that I'm doing something good and it feeds that ego, as I talked about up in the beginning, and also just the recognition, right? You know, we've been out to conferences and it's, you're talking to somebody and and they're going, oh, you're the behavioral grooves people. And it's like, wow, yeah. like I, who, who would have ever thought funk that, man? So it, I, it is cool. Yeah, it is cool. And and I love that Kruglansky's work is really bringing something that is, is sort of intuitive, but he's bringing it to light in a really scholarly way. And it makes me think about Parts of my life, I agree, by the way, that we have quest for significance across a, a multiple domains in our, in our lives. But maybe the ones that we care about the most connect to our truest selves. Oh. That, that the idea that the, the, the parts that really care about significance are the parts that are 
the deepest and most meaningful aspects of who we see ourselves to be. Oh man, Tim, that's a Kinda quote. Cool, huh? That's a quote that I'm putting up. <laughs> that I think you're absolutely right. I think there's an element of this that brings in this idea that underneath it all, underneath all the surface, underneath all the pieces that we put on ourselves that kind of want to make an impression or different things, you peel that all back. And that's really where the significance comes and is making that big motivational push. All right. So we can go on and on and on and on and on and on uh, about significance. And I think we probably will even touch on this more. But I I wanted that there was another really interesting piece and I wanted to get your thoughts on this. So this was, again, it was like this wham, boom, hit me by the side of the head thing uh, when, when Arya talked about it. It was this idea that uh, extrinsic and intrinsic, his concept of how they're, they're not as different or, you know, that, that it all kind of relates back to being intrinsically motivated. So uh, yeah. what, what yep. are your thoughts on that? First off, you know, I think you have a better grasp of that. I was just so blown away that my mind couldn't wrap my, my, you know, thoughts around it. But what, what does that mean for you? And, and and what do you think about it? Well, for a long time, we've often we we've, we've sort of agreed uh, in as as a culture and the way that the psychological research has looked at extrinsic and in, intrinsic as being different things. And and Kruglansky, you know, kind of recognizes, let's say, commonly agreed upon definitions that the the intrinsic really is, intrinsic motivation is about finding uh, the goal and the means are pretty closely aligned that they're they're almost the same thing if not if not the same thing so so like, like an example would be I, I take joy in doing the thing itself not not the outcome of the thing like like uh, a marathon runner might actually take joy just in running not because of the health benefits or or anything like that it's just the actual running itself that's the intrinsic and and that's kind of a classic definition that we've agreed on and the extra extrinsic definition has always been kind of uh about you know some kind of you know seeking something uh and and Kruglansky twists it just a little bit i thought he gave it kind of a nice little spin he said, talked about the clear separation between the means and the goal so that they kind of exist separately at and then the the big boom, the the hit you upside the head uh, for both of us was he's when he said all motivation by definition is internal, is intrinsic. That Something basically within you, yeah, it's all of it comes from within us. That whatever exists outside that that t shirt that you get at the end of the marathon is just a stimulant. It's just a, a way of of putting a spark into the intrinsic motivation that actually gets us to get up in the morning and go running and finish the 26.2 miles. Which again, when we think about this idea of quest for significance, thinking about this in a, in a marathon situation, right? What is that significance that we're striving for, for uh, you trained to do a marathon and you were did yeah. you actually, did you ever finish it? I can't remember now. I, I, I got, no. I, because I got you hurt the, yourself, right? Yeah. I, I got, I got injured, right? Yeah. <laughs> in the, in the training. <laughs> but, but the idea of your, that you're, that t-shirt at the end and having that um, element that says, I actually did this 
I think goes back to that idea of significance that we talked about. Yeah. Because what that the t-shirt itself is not going to get anybody to run 26.2 miles. The value of $15 for a t-shirt is not. But the value of the significance that that t-shirt instills upon that person who owns it, because now I have bragging rights, I've, I've accomplished this feat that that has meaning to me in a different manner, I think is. And so that I think is a really interesting piece. That That's a beautiful tie-in, Kurt. I, I love that because in that domain, we like the idea of being seen as being the winner. We want, if you're going to run 26.2 miles and compete against 10,000 other runners, you sure as hell want to have something to show for it. Yeah. <laughs> and the t-shirt, which of course you actually paid $55 to get into the damn race to start with. So a $15 t-shirt almost seems like a slap in the face, but you're right. It is, it is that quest for significance. And I think that it does that. It also, I, I want to actually bend that over into another part of our, um, of our discussion uh, with, with Kruglansky. It's domain specific or it's, it, it's dominate that, any at any given time, our motivation ends up being focused on a particular domain. That right, that becomes the most important goal for at a particular time. And training for a, for a marathon is a really important goal for for most people. So that in the time that you're training for that goal, you're probably giving up and letting go of and just not worrying about other goals. You're not worried. You're not motivated to pursue a lot of other things. You still have work and family and relationships and things like that. But my perception is that when we are pursuing a major goal, like a marathon or a major presentation or pursuing some aspect of our career or are courting someone, uh, you know, to, to be, for them to be our partner, those things start to dominate and become and our quest for significance becomes more closely aligned with those domains at any given Time. Right. So as, as Krugland said, he said, you know, we, and again, this comes from a lot of his work on radicalization and many of those people who become so enamored with this one aspect of their world and, and making their impact, their significance now becomes this whole radical kind of component that they're being bent on. And that lends itself into kind of dismissing all of these other aspects of their lives and this idea that, as he said, one motivation, those other concerns pale into significance, they fade out. And what happens then is that they stop exercising constraints on what you're going to do to satisfy this one overriding goal. And I thought that was really interesting. Not that our listeners are you know, radicals and in, in doing that, but it's a really interesting way of thinking about those extremists in, in our world. But also, even just if we take it into our own life, when we have that one kind of key thing that we are striving for, that promotion that I'm really working for, that marathon that I'm practicing to run for, all of those, it it kind of narrows our focus. It actually, it doesn't kind of narrow our focus. It, it does, does narrow our focus. Yeah. And that lends itself to maybe doing things around that that 
you know, limit our element of others. I might, you know, forget about my um, family and not pay as much attention to them in my striving to get the promotion. I might not go right. out with my friends. I, you know, those overriding things. But then the other part of this that I loved is that at any moment, I, I'm getting hungry, right? I can't, I'm going to have this other motivation. <laughs> I, I have to sleep. There's that motivation to sleep. There are things that then become more dominant in there. But again, you go, well, that's why some of those people that are really striving for things, they they go without sleep. They, they don't eat well. Uh, they're just doing all sorts of things that in the big picture of things may seem negative, but it's because they're being driven by this overarching quest that they're on. So, Agreed. I also loved how he talked about motivation as the force that propels behavior. And he said that, uh, you know, motivation is the dog and cognition is the tail ah. and, and that, that the dog is wagging. And I love that, this idea that motivation and cognition are, are separate, but the big the big part of the story is motivation. And he, and then he went on to say that emotion is the flip side of motivation. Emotion is the flip side of motivation. And of course they have the same Latin root mm. that those two words, motivation and emotion have the same Latin root movere, which basically means to move. And so when we talk about motivation, we're almost always talking about emotion. And I kind of love that, that uh, he, he, he sort of, you know, brought that to brought that to light in a really cool way. Yeah, I, and I love this idea that cognition in and of itself isn't enough to make us move to that point, right? It it, right. it isn't the driver of the behavior. I may want, I may, I may think about going out and exercising, but until I have the motivation <laughs> to do it, right? I know it's good for me. I know I should be going to the gym every day. I know I should, you know not eat that bowl of ice cream that I'm eating, but I don't have the motivation that's strong enough to actually make that happen. And I, that is, again, one of those ideas that just I can wrap my head around and think about it for hours and hours and hours. So Robert Sapolsky even uh, made a comment um, as a biological neuroscientist he said that um, before our brains are aware of a threat to our well-being, our body starts acting on it. So before we we have that cognition, that the cognition is secondary to the actual experience that our bodies start going. Wait, wait, wait a minute. There's a threat. Yeah. And so I hear that there's on. a you know brush, some noise in the brush, and I'm all of a sudden my body is reacting before I realize that it's a lion. Right. Yeah, my before, my yeah. pulse rate increases, you know, my focus narrows, right. all of those biological components. And yeah, I, that, all right, before that, you have cognition. Yeah. yeah. All right. All right. We could spend the next oh, three man. hours talking about this conversation. We probably will after we actually end this, but we won't put the our listeners through that that uh, that pain of having to listen to us just go <laughs> on and on and on about this. All right. <laughs> I'm looking forward to the next three hours. Let me just say that. Um, and we could do that. Uh, and we will do that because Aria has a 
huge body of work that we just absolutely find the most fascinating, some of the most fascinating stuff that we've come in. And next time he's a guest, we're going to have to talk to him about radicalization. Yeah, definitely going to have to talk more about radicalization and what that is. So I'm in, I'm in for that. But for now, Groovers, we just hope you find these insights on motivation helpful this week as you go out and find your groove.